Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Wednesday, May 10th. Book parties are kind of rare in L.A. media circles, or at least my L.A. media circle. They always kind of take a backseat to movie or TV premieres. But Monday night, I went to a genuine old school book party with a bunch of L.A. media people. It was for Ben Smith, who wrote a new book called Traffic, about the rise and fall of some of the biggest digital media companies of the past 15 years. Names like BuzzFeed, which at one point dominated the discourse and was nearly sold to Disney. HuffPo, the influential aggregation site that is now a shell of its former self. Gawker, which was essentially sued out of existence. And Vice, which was about to declare bankruptcy after being valued at more than $5 billion with investments from traditional media companies. Ben's an interesting media guy, super knowledgeable and well-connected. He was the founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, expanding that brand beyond the quizzes and cat memes and 25 ways to tell you're a kid from the 90s. They broke stories like the Kevin Spacey Me Too claims, a bunch of other stuff, infamously the dossier involving Donald Trump. Then he went on to be the media columnist for the New York Times. Now he's co-founded a new media company called Semaphore. Ben's been in the middle of digital media's wild ride, the pivot to video, the role of Facebook and other social media platforms and how news is generated and distributed. So today it's a little bit of a different show, all about Hollywood and the media. We actually talked a couple weeks ago before BuzzFeed shut down its news group, so we don't get into that. But it's an interesting conversation about this weird moment in media, how the news that you and I consume is made, the role of Hollywood and the evolution of coverage, and where this is all going now. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Ben Smith. Ben, in addition to being the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Semaphore, he is also one of the most knowledgeable people that I know about the media business, the media world, who consumes media and why. And now he wrote a book called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me, Matt. Long-time listener, first-time caller here. <laughs> All right. I appreciate that. So this show's a little different. We typically talk about Hollywood and what's going on inside Hollywood. But this is a topic that impacts Hollywood and impacts what everybody talks about in Hollywood. And I, having covered the business for a long time, I often will talk with people in the industry who are baffled, perplexed by the media ecosystem. 
why things get covered, why things go viral. Everybody is terrified in Hollywood of the media ecosystem and saying the wrong thing, becoming the news cycle for the day. And you know exactly why that happens. And you just wrote a book, which is basically the past 20 years of media and the transition to digital and some of the messiness that went on. So I want to start this by just asking you, like, where are we in the evolution of digital media right now? Are we post-traffic? Are we post-aggregation? Are we post-celebrity? Like, where are we? I think we're really what we are. It's at the end of the social media era and all the things that you were talking about. I mean, Facebook, for instance, has basically unraveled as far as you know, being certainly as far as being a distribution mechanism for news, for and by entertainment. Choice. Well, I think it has lost a lot of its audience, not by choice, and is trying to keep them by being a place that short videos rip often ripped from TikTok play in loops. But it's no longer propelling culture the way it did for a decade. Right. Twitter probably was inevitably going to go the same way, and Elon has kind of given it a shove. But um, but you know, but I think the thing with social media, with social networks, is they're they're like bars and clubs. They're places you and your friends gather. And at some point you get sick of it and go to a new one. And it's not necessarily because they're because you don't like the management or because somebody got something technically wrong. They just get old. And I think and I think that whole moment, that idea that like we, it would be so fun to all be out in the same public space with everybody else on the planet howling at the top of our lungs, which at some point apparently seemed appealing to us, just no longer appeals to us. Yeah, and it's funny because this is very important to news publishers. And you know, I was a news publisher at Hollywood Reporter for many years that was in the traffic game. I mean, we very consciously pivoted in the mid-2000s from being a 80-year-old trade magazine that focused on a very small and influential audience in Hollywood to being a publisher that cared about everyone because we saw the power of the internet and we saw what the Huffington Post and all these other outlets that were big at the time were doing, which was taking the access that they got based on their brand and their relationship and flipping that and turning it into content that anyone on the internet would be interested in. And we did the whole pivot to video when Facebook decided that news publishers should be video publishers. We were very interested in what the Drudge Report was up to. I mean, that was sort of my job. Part of my job for a long time was being the Drudge conduit where I would send stories to the Drudge Report because when he took a story, it delivered a ton of traffic. Now, these were not Hollywood Reporter core audience members, but they were people. They were unique visitors. They were people that would juice our traffic numbers and allow us to say that we were the biggest entertainment publisher in the world or whatever our press release said. That's all changing now, in your opinion, that those spigots have kind of been turned off and it's leaving these outlets to really justify themselves on their own, right? And how are they doing that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sort of been, what I did in the book was just sort of try to go back to the beginning of that whole era with Matt Drudge and Andrew Breitbart hanging out in LA, actually. Um, he is interestingly now sort of the sole survivor. The Drudge Report remains a big source of traffic for publishers and I found myself occasionally going to it to find out what is going on in the world, which is a new experience or hadn't done for a while because Twitter used to do that job. Um, mm -hmm. But I think for most publishers, it, there's just this new focus on building a one-to-one -one relationship with your audience, knowing who they are, giving them, you know, giving them what they really want. I think in different ways, there's a whole generation of publications 
you and I are, you know, are, are at two of them in Semaphore and Puck. Axios, as I would say, of this generation. There's, you know, there's a handful others you could name, you know, who are trying to build in this new post-social media world, build direct relationships with an audience. It's a total. It's a very, very different experience, right? I mean, you must be feeling this. Too. Oh, I mean, we don't even look at our traffic. I mean, we we in our weekly meetings, traffic is so immaterial to us. It's about the relationship, subscriber numbers, people who are coming to us specifically for what we're doing, not who are you know catching us via the vagaries of Google News or Drudge Report or any of the others. It's nice to have a traffic spike, whatever you know you're getting out there, but that's not the metric. And I think for a lot of publishers, they are not as interested in traffic anymore as they once were. I still think there's a lot of value in reaching a lot of people with we and that but you do have to be thinking so hard about making sure they come back with you and like you and stick to you in a way that I think you know that that in the, it, it see there were periods in the kind of glory days of social media when it was like oh you can always go back to that well. And so you don't need to worry about that. Is TikTok a big referral source for news outlets? I don't even know. No, no, but TikTok is certainly the inheritor of the time that people were spending on social media. Right. We, you know, it's actually, it's a pretty good place to distribute news. We've had millions of views on TikTok to, you know, solid, interesting, hard news, not because most people on TikTok are there for that, but just because everyone is on TikTok, including a few people right. who are there for that. But it's really different. People who think that it's not really, it's not social media in the sense that we're used to. It's not lots and lots and lots of people contributing and and listening and talk to each other. It is some of that, but it is mostly leaned back consuming other people's videos. It's more an entertainment product. Right, exactly. I've always said that TikTok is, the competitor of TikTok is YouTube and the traditional yeah. Hollywood creators. Yeah, Totally. It's funny, the the role of celebrity and Hollywood in the evolution of digital media is pretty interesting. I mean, you go on into this in the book in various places where, you know, things like the Huffington Post, which was bragging about its immense traffic and really trying to get everyone to think that it was all coming from their amazing political coverage. But that was a total lie. It was celebrity side boobs and nipple slips and gossip that was beyond the homepage on Huffington Post that was delivering all of that traffic and everything from Gawker Stalker and Perez Hilton and the way that Breitbart and Drudge really leaned into the culture war stuff by highlighting the kind of excesses and hypocrisies of the Hollywood crowd, even BuzzFeed with the celebrity quizzes. Do you think that the leveraging of the Hollywood ecosystem played a major role in the evolution of digital media? Yeah, but as you say, it was sort of the worst parts of it. Because Huffington Post, which was it's hard, <laughs> hard to remember this now, but was really like a pioneer of figuring all this stuff out. It had kind of three things. It had super serious news about Iraq and Barack Obama. It had blogs, which then like a blog was like a, there was a new thing called a blog. Now no one even knows what that is anymore. But they got people like George Clooney to blog. Oh, yeah. I remember Ari Emanuel was blogging right, for that, HuffPo. And that I'm was like, supposed what? to be this really buzzy thing. But you know what? Like George Clooney writes some boring screed. About, I mean, nobody actually cares what these folks think. Here's a newsflash. Celebrities are not good writers. No, and they, and they also don't stake out bold, controversial, and fascinating opinions. No, and it's not even written by them. It's written by 12 publicists who are right. trying to get them, you know, to have a talking point at a party. Right, and so th nobody really wanted to read those either, but there was a perception, and in fact, a perception that caused the AOL to spend, you know, nine figures acquiring the site. 
that this was really what was powering it was this buzzy celebrity content that they were creating themselves for free. Amazing. You know, we're getting George Clooney to write for us for free, plus people opposing the Iraq war, you know, when in fact a lot of the traffic was always people scrolling down the page, clicking on the side boob and was, you know, essentially about people's kind of worst impulses, or at least their most private impulses. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So what works on the internet right now? What is the surefire path to an audience? Genre of content? Is video work anymore? You're doing video at Semaphore, I saw. Is that for a big audience or is that for small? Video on TikTok can reach a huge audience. There's more people on there than there are on what's left of the internet. And I think the reason, you know, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things happening is the internet, like what we think of as the internet, the world wide web that you get through through your browser is like shrinking to the point of vanishing. That's not where people spend their times anymore. I was talking to one of my kids about HuffingPost actually, and they were like, oh, what's that? And I was like, oh, it's a website with news. Do you ever look at it? And they're like, oh, you mean like inside Safari? Like, you know, it's just a totally different conception of, of digital media and TikTok is the biggest slice of it. So, you know, and, and so in short video is, what most people spend most of their time consuming. So obviously that's a huge space. But email is also, you know, as the web has shrunk, email has sort of come back as a really good way to reach people directly. Me as a someone who is editor of a publication that reached a lot of people, I find email to be a great medium. It is so much more intimate and personal. And people at Puck, they get emails from me twice a week and it's me and it's and they respond. And we have a great dialogue and it's so much better than just pumping out content into the world where it's faceless and people don't know who is producing it. I like the email newsletter format a lot. I like it too. I'm enjoying it. But I think like, you know, we're all sort of like seeing, kind of like seeing the same trends in media and trying to, and and chasing them. The people want this more direct connection. I mean, I do think the one thing that like news is finally, finally learning from Hollywood, which is that like, you know, which like got rid of the RKO studio model 75 years ago and is the centrality of talent. And journalists like hate it when you use words like influencer, brand, they like throw up in their mouths. But it is also just true that people in this day and age, for better or for worse, connect with and trust individuals more than institutions. It's true in politics. It's true in sports. It's obviously true in entertainment. I think news, because it was like the worst business of the media businesses, was sort of the right. last to go that way. But I think the thing that is a huge advantage for newcomers and a challenge for big industrial era news organizations is to build around individuals, individuals' voices, you know, and I think different places 
do that different ways for us. It's a lot about these like reporters who get scoops. I say like one thing that continues to work is breaking news. It's called news. It's important to have news in it. They're the kind of reporter who breaks news and actually knows some stuff. And the tradition at mainstream organizations is that they are not allowed to say what they know or what they think. And so they smuggle it in in a million subtle ways through who they quote and how they frame <laughs> things and adjectives and adverbs. And people get that. They're in on the joke. And so I think like we've tried to take people who, you know, like Liz Hoffman, who covers finance for us, who knows what she's talking about, can break huge stories can, can, and is allowed to tell you what she thinks about them. Yeah, I think that is the differentiator because so many outlets do not do that. The number one thing I said when I started over at Puck, I was like, okay, this is going to have a voice. This is going to have opinions. It's going to have news. It's going to have analysis. It's going to have all the other things, but you got to tell people what you think these days. There's, there's a level of transparency and that's what people are looking for. The news, especially in my world, there's 20 outlets that are all covering the same headlines. So if you're not telling people what you think about it or how they should think about it, um, you're not adding much. The other opportunity that we see is just people feel so massively overwhelmed by the amount of incoming sort of leftover from the era I was writing about in traffic, like just the deluge of content and and the splintering of the web. It's just hard to know what to read. And actually, sometimes you read a story from a place you like and trust and you think, huh, I should probably Google this and read six other stories on the same subject to triangulate what really happened. <laughs> and so we are yeah. like very focused in our product on if I write a story about, you know, how great Matt Bellany is, I'm going to include a couple links and sort of descriptions of other stories about how terrible you are. And just so that the right. person to save, to kind of save that step. And he will trust you more when you don't pretend you have a kind of monopoly on truth. Who's doing interesting stuff these days? Like what is out there in the media ecosystem that someone like you is paying attention to? Oh man. I mean, you, I, by the way, you write about this. You have a great Sunday column, but like who's someone that you'd like to speak to or that you, that you think is doing something interesting in media? Huh. You know, I mean, I just kind of write about it every week. So that's sort of the answer. I mean, I think the folks at Fox News are just doing fascinating stuff. Oh, yeah. Fox News. Amazing. Paying a lot of attention to the innovations in um, in settlement uh, structure yeah. and, and in insurance that they've been pioneering over there. Yeah, I know. Do you think Rupert changes at all? Do you think the Fox oh. News product changes at all after this settlement? No, of course not. I, th I mean, who knows? Superficially, maybe. But ultimately, they are in the business of telling supporters of Donald Trump what they want to hear. And if they diverge from that, they will lose their lose business. And they seem to be unable to do that. I think they may add a fact checker or one line saying, you know, these claims about election interference have not been verified by Fox News or something like that. Oh, sure. Superficial stuff. No, but I don't think Murdoch has not learned any lessons. Murdoch is going to do what he does and it will continue like that until he is gone and then they'll figure out what to do with it. Yeah, the lesson is you can write a check to make stuff go away. Right. Money wins. <laughs> <laughs> on, that, on that cheerful note. No, I mean, I think that, like, I guess some of the most interesting stuff, I mean, the sort of question of, like, what comes after Twitter. Not that Twitter's going away, but just that the web is splintering and, like, social media is splintering. People are looking for smaller spaces to talk about stuff, whether that's, like, this sort of Substack world or there's an app called Wavelength where you can that sort of group, a more sophisticated way of doing group text with an AI bot that chimes in occasionally. Like, I'm not sure who, what comes out of that, but I think there is a lot of, I don't know, people are interacting with media in different ways. Again, the, you know, the rise of AI is really, really interesting. And it, it does feel like another moment, like the beginning of the internet, when there's all sorts of horrible things will happen, but also a lot of really creative, interesting stuff can happen. Something to manage all my group texts. That would be great. 
Yeah, that's actually, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like everyone just lives in group text and they're not, and you can't thread them, right? Like sometimes there are three going on in the same group at the same time and it's kind of a mess. So, yeah, and you accidentally respond on the family text, like, fuck you, man. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to that party. And it's like, oops, sorry, mom. That's actually not the problem that I have or was thinking about, but also don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's the crazy thing is that no one really knows. If you were sitting, like you write in the book, all these guys who were sitting around in the mid 2000s thinking about ways to go viral and get their content noticed by people around the world, they didn't realize that social media was coming along and that that would be how we did it for 15 years. And we're all sitting here now trying to figure out how we're going to find out what's going on in the world in the next five years. It's probably not going to be the metaverse. It's probably not going to be Web3. It'll be something. But who knows the answer to that? Who is the one person that knows more than anyone the answer? So, A, I think it's going to be more different more different things than it was. Like, there was this yeah. kind of monoculture of social media. But, I, I, but when you said nobody saw it coming, I mean, the interesting thing about BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti, was his core accomplishment was that he did see it coming and kind of put up a sail to catch it. And BuzzFeed just caught that wind in a, like a, in a massive, and rode it to a massive scale, couldn't hang on to it, didn't, couldn't figure out fully you know, how to come down from that, basically, and, and to not get kind of dragged down with Facebook's decline. But when I was right. there in 2012, I mean, just, it was, you know, we just sort of, and it was almost like this sense that you, like history was on your side, that like, yeah. you know, we were going to win this media competition, regardless almost of the details of execution, because we had allied ourselves with the future that was social media. I mean, I think people feel that way about AI now. Yeah, you guys experimenting with AI, Semaphore? Yeah, we are. I mean, I think it's an incredibly useful tool for sort of, for copy editing, for instance. And we're doing a lot yeah. of that. I mean, I think, you know, fortunately for you and for me, like it gets worse as you get like further up the ass of the culture. And so media reporters are going to be the last to go. Yeah. Specialization helps. The days of the general interest reporter, I think those people are vulnerable. I mean, the kind of reporting that was really built for the last era, for cranking out volume of low quality content for search and for social media, yeah. that never, yeah. you'd never really pay a person's salary for that anyway, or you had to pay them so little. Oh, we did. Them- we had people at THR that were just scouring the internet, looking for if some celebrity did an interview and said something embarrassing to aggregate it and get it on search. Yeah, maybe... But that was never going to be a high margin business because you know, that was a tough business at its best. The only, yeah. I think the journalism jobs that are vulnerable to AI are kind of those jobs. That model has other problems. Yeah, and then, and then I do think that there are production roles. Like, like, you know, this is really boring and it's not what, you know, high-end news philosophers spend their time thinking about. But there are a lot, there's a lot of work around copy editing production that you really can't automate. Yeah. You know, that's valuable. How about podcasts? What's the future of podcasts? This one accepted, of course. I mean, it seems like we're in the middle of a huge shakeout, right? Where there was just so much, right. there was more podcasts than there were people listening to podcasts. And, you know, I mean, in a way- Well, there's, the there's, dirty there's, secret of podcasts is 99% of them, nobody gives a shit about or listens to. Right. I mean, it's, it's really an honor to be on one of in, one in that 1%. <laughs> this one accepted, of course. Yeah. We reached the upper echelon of real listeners. I think, a, you know, an oncoming recession is part of this too. Like yeah. there's going to be the tide is coming out. Stuff that wasn't viable is going to go away. There's going to be a lot of consolidation. And, you know, and there's a bit of a flight to quality and flight to stuff with a real audience. Yeah, I know. But that's a good thing, right? 
I think so, but I don't know. Maybe we'll look back in five years and say, wow, wasn't it great when everyone could, you know, talk openly about their evil plans rather than organizing them in secret telegram groups. So, you know, and so that they burst out with no more warning. I don't know. Things can always get worse and go wrong. Yeah. Speaking of going wrong, give me the end game for Twitter. You mentioned that it's sort of going away, but not going away. How long is Elon going to screw around with this? He's going to be out in two years, right? I don't know. He seems like he's obsessed with it and loves it and and, and cares about it personally. Um, and things don't like, I mean, MySpace was around for years after the death, you know, after it was obviously dead. Facebook is around. It's not going away, but it's just not culturally central and yeah. relevant. The well, way Murdoch realized he made a terrible mistake and got out. That's what I think right. will happen with Elon at some point. But I think social networks, you know, just their like natural state is to decay, right? Like people just move on. That said, Twitter, like, and I don't think it for sure, it's obviously Musk decided that it's not a good place for authoritative news or tr or like trusted news or truth. And it's chasing all of us away who are in that business. And like, there are other businesses. I actually have always thought that the obvious, obvious place was sports gambling. Like that's where half the money in media is anyway. Twitter is such right. a fun place to watch sports. Like, sure, make it, if, you, if you could bet on sports inside the app, seems like that would be great for that. The problem is he does not seem like a sports fan. No, I think actually the reason they're not doing it is he's not really a sports fan. And, and, but I do think that he's ultimately is actually, an, he's an ideologue and many other things. He is also mostly a business guy. Like most of these Silicon mm -hmm. Valley people who often get written about or seen by the Hollywood press as entertainment figures, by the Washington press as political figures, yep. are really fundamentally entrepreneurs. A lot of what he's thinking, I mean, a lot of what he's done is cut costs. A lot of what he's thinking about is making it profitable. There are like boring ways. If he if he's willing to hang on and lose enough money for a long enough time, he'll probably find a boring way to make it profitable. I know. He'll probably get into like insurance or, you know, selling people up charges on things. Uh, are you going to pay for the blue check? You know, I did like two years ago because I loved the um, the nuzzle replacement, the thing that would tell you what stories your friends were reading. I mean, the blue check itself is obviously an embarrassing liability. Um and it doesn't yeah. seem like anything, you know, honestly, it, like I'm an entrepreneur now, like if it would drive traffic to semaphore.com and get us conversions, I would happily pay for it. It doesn't really seem like it's doing that either. No, it's a vanity. And at some point it will be uncool to have one. Yeah, it's so like a reverse vanity. Out. It's kind of painful. I know. Come check me out. I'm credible. I don't have a blue check. All right, Ben, the book is fantastic. Traffic. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, I got some interesting feedback from Lucas and I's conversation about the week one strike narratives on Monday. Okay. It was actually a good point that a representative for talent made. So this was not coming from a studio person, but I, I want to read it because it, it dovetails with a prediction I want to make. He said, I don't know how fair it is to bash the CEO compensation stuff without mentioning the mega showrunners. Deals that were one to two million dollars per year are now regularly five to ten million dollars. Top writers make 150 million, like Shonda Rhimes, 200 million, like Seth MacFarlane, 250 million, like JJ Abrams, and 300 million, like Greg Berlanti. Previously, the mega creators like Norman Lear, Chuck Lorre, John Wells, they made their money in back end, not guarantees, because their shows were profitable. Now, those deals are fully guaranteed for writers. That's an interesting point this person made, and it gets to my prediction for today, which is I think that in this strike, the haves and have-nots of the Writers Guild are going to become a much bigger issue. This is a guild that the leadership is dominated, not fully, but most of the big voices 
are the lower earning writers right now. And there are some very high earning writers that have really benefited from this peak TV age. And we haven't heard as much from them. We know why, because obviously the economics of the guild benefit the lower earners and it's more designed uh, these negotiations to protect the lower earners. But this is a guild with very high earning people. And if they're not allowed to work for six months, they're going to get angry. So when you say the haves and have nots and how it will come down to that, what do you mean exactly? I'm just saying that the frustration level amongst these higher earning writers is going to become greater as the strike drags on. That if you are looking at a strike in October, November, December of this year and not being resolved because the writers are still unable to come to terms, these top earning writers are going to be pissed. This is their, you know, they they don't need this guild really at this point. Their agents are able to negotiate for them so far above scale that they don't need the benefits of this. And it's going to take a really big sacrifice for these high earning members to continue on this path when, for the most part, the benefits of this negotiation are going to the bottom end of the guild. But aren't these showrunners, aren't these J.J. Abrams, Greg Berlanti types, aren't they also producers so they're still getting paid anyway? Well, for this? now, but that's going to end. I mean, a lot of these deals are going to be force majeure. Yeah. I want to do an episode in general on overall deals because a question I've wanted to ask you is, has a major overall deal ever really worked or been worth it? Oh, yeah. I mean, look at Chuck Lorre's deals with Warner Brothers Television. Okay, let, let's let's do a modern one. Let's do a modern one. Last 15 years. Well, you can make the argument. It's, it's a little bit harder to quantify for like the Netflix deals. You know, everyone was harping on Ryan Murphy's deal, which it, it got announced as 300 million. It's not 300 million, but he was a loss for Netflix for many years. But then all of a sudden it started kicking in and he's making money for them. Now, I don't know if it ultimately is a good deal, that's something that the Netflix analytics department is it more will... of a branding exercise just to say, hey, look, we have yeah. Ryan Murphy. That's why that's why Netflix was doing it. They went on the spending spree to show the town that they could have the top creators. Now, Shonda Rhimes doesn't do a lot of shows, but her shows are gigantic hits. This Queen Charlotte show that just came out. Guarantee you that's going to be the number one TV show of the week. And Netflix likes the relationship with Shonda Rhimes because it's a regular pipeline. They paid a lot of money for her, but she essentially set up shop there and has stuff in the works that's going to keep coming out. And also the reason you do an overall deal is not just for the output you get. It's to prevent your competitors from getting that person's output. Shonda is not allowed to do other stuff. She has to work for Netflix. So they're capitalizing on one of the top creators. And if you're in a scarcity business, there's only a certain number of people that are reliable hit makers, if you believe this theory, and she's one of them. So you got to lock her up or she's going to go elsewhere. Now, there, there are a lot of these deals that don't make sense, and especially the heights that they've gotten to. I mean, the J.J. Abrams deal is a, is a perfect example. Like Warner Brothers is financing overhead for his company. It, it's just insane, the hundreds of millions of dollars they're spending on this. And they haven't gotten the benefit out of it that they might have thought. Uh, but those are the risks you take. 
Yeah, I think this is something we should get into in a later episode. Yeah, happy to do that. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Ben Smith. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. I want to thank our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.